Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and recently I was privileged to join Dick Clark on the Bob Murphy Show. And it was such a great conversation with Bob and Dick about the book Faith Seeking Freedom. And Bob asked some really tough questions, some, sometimes out of a little bit of like, hey, I just got to do due diligence and ask the tough questions. But it really opened up a lot of conversation Top of mind in my memory is that we talked about doesn't God own everything and what is the Christian libertarian's view on, you know, self-ownership. So anyway, I wanted to share that episode with you. So I hope you enjoy. Well, Doug and Dick, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Hey, Dick. Uh, hey, Bob. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> well, for you having me. say hi to him too. Oh, yes. yeah. Hey, Dick. Yeah. I already said hi to him. <laughs> of course I like to say hello. Hello, gents. So what we're going to be talking about, folks, for those who are watching the uh the YouTube version is this book, Faith Seeking Freedom, and that the Libertarian Christian Institute has put out. So before we dive into the content, why don't I give you guys an opportunity to maybe explain briefly who you each are and then uh, what the Libertarian Christian Institute is, and then the genesis of this book project, and then there are other authors listed on this just besides you two. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll just start. My name is Doug Stewart. I am the CEO of the Libertarian Christian Institute. Uh, you can find us at libertarianchristians.com. We've been around not as an institute, but as a website since as early as late 2008. Uh, and it was founded by Dr. Norman Horn. I'll explain a little bit more of that as I go through things. But I've been the CEO for a couple of years, and um, I'm I'm really in charge of making sure that we get consistent content output and also sort of part of the strategic uh, value to LCI in terms of like, hey, what is it that we're going to do to support those of uh, those who listen to our podcast, those who you know read our our articles, and you know correspond with people. And so, in terms of the book, Faith Seeking Freedom, what we've what we learned was a lot of people have uh, have come to us and said, hey, I'm a Christian and I'm a libertarian. And I'm having trouble putting these two things together in a cohesive sort of presentation. And so there's a lot of questions that people have. It could be uh, from anything from abortion to free market economics to socialism, social justice, you know, immigration is a big topic, uh, saying the Pledge of Allegiance, those kinds of things. And so what we've done is we created a book, not necessarily, not primarily to say, hey, you should be a libertarian because of this. There's actually a book out there for that reason. Um, and But to equip those who are Christians and libertarians to give succinct, adequate, and accurate, of course, defenses uh, to the over 100 questions that they tend to get asked the most. Now, incidentally, when you answer and you create a book like this, this is a great uh, introduction to people who have no idea what libertarianism is um, and from a Christian perspective. So it really, it, it's funny, our primary purpose was just for the for our own crowds, so to speak, uh, to, be, to equip them because that's our goal. Uh, but it also turned out to be just this handy, hey, you know what? we've had this conversation, you're asking me things about libertarianism, you know, why don't, why don't you read this book? Um, so uh, that's sort of the genesis of the book itself. And uh, I'll let Dick introduce himself uh, further because he's one of my co-authors. Yeah, thanks, Doug. So uh, 
Of course, uh, my name is Dick Clark. I'm an attorney in Lincoln, Nebraska, and uh, sitting in Dick Clark Law right now. But I have been involved uh, really uh, talking about libertarian Christian ideas, I guess, for about the last 20 years. And, and Bob, you'd know a little something about that because I always say you're my libertarian maker, happened across you in Auburn and uh, had some conversations that really made a difference in how I address these issues. And I've been loud about it ever since. So I guess thanks for that. Uh, but last year, uh, when this project was really taken on a head of steam, uh, Norman got in touch with me. And and we've talked almost daily for the last 15 years because we're on this libertarian mailing list with Stephen Kinsella and some other libertarian near-do-wells talking about libertarian theory every day. So Norman said, hey, you write about this stuff on the list all the time. What would you think about coming on board this project? And he told me about Doug and Carrie being involved. And it was just a really awesome opportunity to, again, as Doug said, put things in a form that hopefully is useful and easily digestible, both to people who are trying to crystallize their ideas as libertarians about mm -hmm. how do I explain this issue? How do I connect it with my faith? Uh, why is this not only acceptable as a Christian to take this view, but why ought a Christian take this view? Uh, and then it's a great, for that reason, it's a great appeal to other people who are Christian believers, I think, who need to understand, hey, how is this a product of Christianity or, you know, something that Christianity would point me towards yeah. rather than me having to conform my faith to this worldview, right? Mm -hmm. And so to me, that was probably the most important part of the mission is almost a, a apologia for Christian libertarianism, so. Okay, great. And to reciprocate that, uh, Dick, the, I think, yeah, I told you this at the time, but when I first met you, when I was down at the Mises Institute, I was still an atheist at that point. And then I was looking at your website and then I noticed like you proudly proclaimed the date that you accepted Jesus as your savior. Mm. And that kind of just filed that away. And then that, for whatever reason, when I, when I did the, the, the same move, like, I, I think I kind of remember that you had done that. And like, that's what made me say, you know what? I think I should actually, you know, go mm. on and, and formally do this thing and remember, and remember the date that I did it and that kind of stuff. So anyway, that, that stuck out to me at the time. So, well, that's, awesome. oh, that's really cool. Um, why don't we, before we get into the book, just, you, you've alluded to Norman Horn, who's one of the co-authors. So mm -hmm. you'll know who he is. What about Carrie Baldwin? Who, who is she? For people yeah. Don't so know? Carrie Baldwin is the, uh, I don't know what the word is, the founder or the, the only person at a, a website called Mere Liberty. And she is a philosopher and a regular writer to the Libertarian Christian Institute. She is also starting to become well-known in the libertarian world uh, because of her debate with Walter Block at the Soho Forum right. uh, mm -hmm. in, let's see, it would have been December right before COVID. So December 2019, um, which, you know, that was the, actually the only Soho debate I got to watch. And I tell you what, uh, in person, I actually went up to watch it live and it was just, it was so great. Um, I got to know Walter and Carrie a little bit more by watching them interact. And uh, it was one, one of the better ones that I've seen. And so on that, Walter was defending his well-known evictionism yep, yep, position, right. and then yeah. she was, would you call it pro-life, or is that is that too clunky of a term? She, I, I would let her self-identify specifically, but it's more like, you know, it's sort of like, Christ, it's sort of like Christian saying, I'm a Jesus follower, or a right, libertarian right. saying, well, I'm really more of a free marketer, or whatever, right. you know, it's like, you know, you get to nuance their terms, but yes, she is pro-life. Okay. So in other words, she was against... Walter's evictionism yes. because it allowed for the, okay. Yeah. Um, 
So let, let us mention while we're talking about this for the listeners, even though there's the news hook of the Texas abortion controversy and abortion is covered in this book in detail, we decided we're not going to go over that in this particular episode, which by the way, folks, is bobmurphyshow.com slash 214 because Carrie had a lot to do with the content in the book. And so we just decided, why don't I try to get her on separately and just talk about, you know, get a whole a episode just on that right. and you will so, love it. So we will defer. Yeah. And, and plus there's so much material in this book. We don't need to do that if we're going to defer that one. Okay. So wh- let me just jump right in then and we'll start with the big picture stuff. So I think a lot of Christians would say, uh, I won't necessarily read these verbatim, but you can imagine a lot of Christians saying, hey, you know, get the p- politics is dirty and, you know, Jesus doesn't want us to, you know, his kingdom's not of this world, that those, those sorts of sentiments. Mm-hmm. And so you can understand a Christian who's, look, it's not that I'm against libertarianism, but that's certainly not an important element of my yeah. overall you know, makeup and I, you guys by focusing on this so much, that's, you know, doesn't mm. Jesus want us to focus on the important stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does feel like a lot of people feel like they're getting dragged into politics, the into the dirty arena of politics, if they have to become a libertarian. And, you know, we do, of course, answer that question in the book. We doesn't mean you join a party. It means a certain particular set of ideas that you believe about your relationship to basically the rest of the world, um, and mostly important, most importantly, to, to strangers whom you you know have casual interaction with in the marketplace. And so, yeah, I, th- I think a lot of Christians are worried that if they if they get dragged into it, that that means that it they they're either less Christian or it's not really central to the message of the gospel. Um, and I would I would push back a little bit on that, and we do a little bit in the book, and say, well, if all you're thinking of when you hear the word politics is electoral politics and the you know the attack ads that you see or hear see on TV or hear on the radio or you know on your Facebook feed or whatever, uh, well, of course, uh, what we're not saying, of course, you're going to have that view. But if you expand your view of what politics means uh, in its sort of more raw, neutral form, it really is how do you relate to other people? And everybody is political. Um, they have a way of being in the world that relates to other people in certain ways. So they might be the, um, the person who thinks that all government, or I'm sorry, all businesses should have certain types of minimum regulations. They, they might hold that opinion. Well, as soon as you hold that opinion, you're, you're already being political, even though you may or may, or may not vote. And so the way of being in the world in, in our minds is that you have a, a thought about what your relationship is to the rest of the world. Um, well, and, and yeah. you know, it's not like our relation to others isn't addressed in Scripture, right? I mean, yeah. obviously, the story that's told in the Bible is central on God and his relation to us. But it matters to God how we treat other people. And it couldn't be clearer in Scripture, right? And there's all sorts of admonitions, especially if you're looking at the Old Testament and the minor prophets, for example. Again and again, there's these admonitions. Don't abuse the hireling. Don't abuse the stranger. Mm. You know, don't pervert justice against the widow and the orphan. So these ideas that human justice is part of our service to God, to me, it's it's what makes me a, a Christian libertarian is mm-hmm. that I'm supposed to be not only telling people right from wrong, but being an example of it. And so I need to understand how to live my life in a way that is just towards others, because that's part of my duty to God. 
So it is an important part of your Christian walk to walk in a way that's upright, right? To avoid evil, to avoid causing other people to be victims, not just because we're hurting our witness with them, but because I'm commanded to do it, right? So, And to get a little theological, I'll answer that even. I'll push back against that sentiment that people have a little bit further. When, when we declare that Jesus is Lord, implicit in that in the first century was that Caesar is not. You can't quite tell, but I'm wearing this hat that says Jesus is Lord, and underneath of it, there's Caesar sort of crossed out. And basically, when the early church said that Jesus is Lord, they weren't just saying, oh yeah, Jesus is our Savior, although they were saying that, of course. Uh, But what they are saying was a very politicized statement. Uh, It would be something like, Jesus is my president, or Jesus is my Supreme Court president and Congress. You know, like, Jesus is my authority, not Caesar. And we all know that Caesar, in in our modern day, represented by the state, uh, wants our allegiance, wants our authority, uh, or wants our obedience to to its authority or alleged authority. And so Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 I'm the one whom you should have allegiance to. Uh, I'm I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so in order to say that you follow Jesus, you have to say that anything else that demands the same kinds of things that Jesus demands of you is not only suspect, but to be rejected. Okay, so I think those are good answers and I agree with you guys. Let me just push back to make this interview more interesting and not just a bunch of softballs. Oh, good. <laughs> so I certainly understand it. Like, like a, a true Marxist, I think it's not merely that we would disagree with this person on you know their their views of the labor theory of value or the the way to increase gdp growth or something mm-hmm. like that but also i think we would for at least the typical marxist that we know of we would say wow man like it's a shame that you just you can't get by in society without sitting back and just you know wringing your hands and getting mad and cursing the exploitation of the proletariat <laughs> like can't you just relax and watch a football game or something, man? Jeez, you know what I mean? Like how the Marxists quote, make everything political. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so my question is, do you, do you get what I mean? And do you agree with it? And you think, okay, yes, what they're doing is a mistake. Or another example would be sometimes people say things like, hey, especially now that everybody's fighting so much on social media over, you know, masks or vaccines or whatever. Some people lament and say, hey, you know, you should be able to be friends with someone and put aside your politics. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like that's, you know, one way of looking at it, but it looked like in your guys' answer, you were like, well, no, in broadly defined, politics really isn't important. It's like, sorry, like, yeah, sure, the guy down the street, he's a serial killer, but let's put that aside and go have a beer with him. Like, pe- people don't talk like that, but they would say, <laughs> oh, yeah, I voted for Trump, you voted for, you know, whoever, Clinton, but let's let's at least put that yeah. aside where we watch the kids' soccer game. So I'm just wondering, you know, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, it seems like in some contexts, we're above the fray and it's our opponents who are, really unreasonable and geez, all they think about is politics. And on the other hand, it's like, no, I'm a good person because I know not to, you know, violate someone's rights. Whereas these people over here, they think because the majority voted for it, it's okay. And wow, what a bunch well, of scumbags. So as a practical response, <laughs> we've not yet been so successful at persuading people of libertarianism that we can sort of just hold up with the libertarians. So I, right. <laughs> I guess from our perspective, we better be able to break bread with people in hopes that we can at least have civil conversations. Now, I'm a proselytizing Christian believer, and again, I I think that this view of how uh, we're supposed to be just in the world is part of that. But as long as we can assume good faith, right, as long as you can have a conversation with that other party and both of you believes that the other one is, is trying to get to the right answer, 
then I think that there's hope, right? And of course, the Bible is a, a message about hope for people who are fallen and have done broken, you know, depraved things, being redeemed, right? And unmerited favor. And we're supposed to reflect that as Christians. So, you know, should we be hardline on we must stand up for justice and not be mushy on it? I think we have to. Does that mean that we socially ostracize other people to the point where we can never reach them? Absolutely not, right? I mean, I, I think we mm-hmm. are supposed to be helping other people be not just be reconciled with us, but be reconciled with God. And and this appeal to, you know, from justice is, is you have to have the hope that people can mm-hmm. be redeemed. And none of us, I don't think, came from the crib forward, you know, carrying a copy of uh, Man, Economy, and State or anything, and so maybe we have all gone through a, a conversion experience of sorts to libertarianism, although I wouldn't say it's at the same level. We of, all were born with know. self-interest, though. I mean, isn't that why <laughs> yeah. we cry out? Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. well, and, and there's things from lived experience that just testifies to the truth of what we're saying when we're libertarians and we talk about the justice of property rights and yeah. not hurting other people, injuring other people and violating their rights. Okay, so it... As you guys, as you were explaining that, Dick, I was thinking, is maybe the resolution or one way of approaching it is to, to, as always, follow the example of Jesus. He was uncompromising in terms of, you know, what's right and what's wrong and his value system, let's say, but he also would associate with sinners. It's not, yeah. you know, so in other words, and it's not that he went around huffing and puffing and like, oh my God, you, you people are disgusting. And, I, yeah. you know, I can't believe it. I, I would never associate with you because I'm a better person. And so really when we recoil against, again, that hypothetical Marxist, yeah, maybe right. it's more of a, a stereotype rather than a real person yeah. who can't participate in just normal everyday activities without offering commentary and being real smug. It's not so yeah. much that you have these intellectual views on things. It's more that you think you're better than people and that's making it, you know, you making you unable <laughs> to associate with them. And, and like you guys are saying, to maybe help them see if, if, if they really are walking around in error you're not going to help anything by just turning up your nose at them. Right, because that just probably gets them to dig in deeper to the error. Okay. Doug, you want to say anything else on this one? Yeah, I don't think we're calling everybody to be activists and certainly not jerks. Um, you know, when when Dick and Norman and Bob, if you, if all the four of us were to get together and, and have a drink, we, we'd all be bickering about all kinds of taxes and different things that are worth bickering about and complaining about and whatever, or even for that matter, if we got together with an actual Marxist. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, we're not, we're definitely calling people to, to be civil with one another and be willing to break bread and, and, and all of that. So uh, well, and, yeah. And libertarianism, it's not a collectivist utopian scheme where how do we get to the place where jets and cars are zipping around? Although maybe, but, and and no offense to anybody who's written a book about the, the Jetsons world. Right. (laughs) But the fact is libertarianism is a theory of justice and it is first and foremost applicable to me and how I live my life. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I don't have to be an activist to care about the payload of the libertarian message because it informs how I can be an upright person and what are the rational, natural extensions of the things that I see in God's law? You know, how does that land in my day-to-day life? You know, how do, and so that is the core of it. You don't ever have to tell another person about libertarianism to be a libertarian, although I challenge you to try, but uh, (laughs) it's hard to do sometimes. Uh, But no, the first, you know, critical priority is to 
you know, me be that living sacrifice, right? And right. and be holy and acceptable to God. And we're supposed to be salt and light too, but I'm not very good salt and light if I'm not living the principles myself, right? Then I'm a mm-hmm. hypocrite. And so to me, that's the critical first thing is how how can I be a just person? Okay, is this a fair way of putting it then? So it sounds like you guys are saying, just like you often hear, hey, don't go to church on Sunday and you're a real Christian on Sunday, but then when you go back into the world for the work week, you're a different person, you have different values that no, you're supposed to be the same and there's a way to live your Christian faith and ethics, you know, in the real world. Likewise, you're saying it does have implications for your political positions. Is is that a fair way of putting it? Yes. Uh, And I think a lot of Christians make the mistake of delegating their conscience in certain parts of their life to other people. And they just sort of throw up their hands and say, well, I, I just think I heard it someplace that, you know, killing is okay if it's in war or if the state does it or if it's on self-defense. And so therefore I'm just not going to fool with those things. Somebody else is handling it and I'm not going to push yeah, they back. They outsource a whole bunch, their right? values and ethics. Right. And, and the problem is, it's not that we're supposed to take up arms and go like stop the military from deploying on some unjust mission, but we sure ought to refrain from, you know, engaging in injustice ourselves. And we have to know what that means to follow Mm -hmm. that line. And so, yeah. All right. Well, what about, uh, I'm just looking at some of these questions. So the Israelites had Kings and, you know, some would argue that it was a theocracy. And so if you can try to hit both of those, so, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing what the obvious response is about the king element, but then even broadly say, okay, but still it seemed like they were, they were fusing, you know, the, their theology with political government. And so what, you know, how, how does that affect what, what you guys are doing, your project? Well, you know, the, I, I'm teaching a unit in Sunday school right now in the life of David, right? And so he's the second king of the kingdom of Israel. But remember the nation of Israel as a, an authority within the promised land where it was a discrete people and they were the ones sort of, uh, you know, over that, over that land, the first third of that history was without a King, right? It was a period of judges. And at the, you know, in Deuteronomy, uh, the people of Israel are given warnings about some future King that they might decide to put over them. Right. And they say, well, don't make it somebody who's after a bunch of wives and horses and all this sort of thing. And so, of course, what do we immediately see? I mean, right off the bat, uh, well, of course, when they demand a king and they eventually get Saul, we see in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that they're condemned, right? The, the people of Israel are condemned as rebelling against God and rejecting his rule because he's provided for them up to this point, right? That a judge would be raised up when there was some threat, external or internal, and God would handle it. And, of course, Gideon piously refused to accept a kingship after he did sort of his work as a judge in defending Israel. And so by the time we get to Saul and David, we just immediately see that these people are not consistent with the high and perhaps for a king impossible standard set in that admonition in Deuteronomy. And we do see that, you know, David, uh, who— was a believer, right, in the living God and seeking God's will in many, many instances, nonetheless, went after many wives, right? And we see the terrible trouble, I mean, the fratricide within his family uh, that occurred because of him going after many wives and having all these little rivalries within these branches of the family. And I just think it's clear that kings could never live up to the standard, and sometimes they would be more uh, wicked, and sometimes they would 
you know, have these moments where they uh, were willing participants in God's plan, not being drug into God's plan. But it, it seemed like that was almost a miraculous intervention by God to allow that king to rely on him, right? And that was the exception and not the rule. Uh, and the, the great things that we see from David in there with a lot of terrible things include those moments where he makes clear David didn't do this, right? The, the soldiers in Israel's army didn't do this. God did this. And when people try to put the nation state in the seat, uh, uh, you know, to be honored rather than God being on the throne, that is idolatry. And that is a rejection of God's rule. And so what I would tell those Christians who, especially if we're thinking about the big military, you know, service that some churches might do to have a bunch of guys in uniform stand up, I hate to tell you, we can be thankful to God that we live in a relatively safe and free place, but church is not a place where we honor Caesar. And there's not just libertarians that believe that. I think there are people who wouldn't call themselves libertarians out there, including at least one childhood friend that I know who's a pastor now, who who said this when somebody was asking, hey, are we doing a God and country Sunday? And he said, you know, we just don't render praise to Caesar in church. That's not what the church is about. And it's a rivalry for our faith. And, and if we don't recognize that, we could fall into it pretty easy. So. Okay. Do you guys anything that's Doug or? I, I think Dick was pretty thorough with that. So I don't, I don't okay. really have anything to add. Okay. Let me, I don't know that this was a specific question from the book, but let me just follow up on that. Sure. I can imagine some Christians saying something like, okay, look guys, uh, I agree. Obviously we, we have to have godly men in political office and women in political office and no one's going to be perfect. Of course, it's like not even King David, but you you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. The writings of Paul, of course, established that God is the one who's picking the political rulers. And but beyond just that, so isn't shouldn't we as Christians just seek to make sure Christian people or people at least mm-hmm. who follow Christian precepts are the ones that we elect in our society? Whereas you know, I, I've known some of your guys' views on. I've seen you when you talk more freely, and wow, it's not just that you want to get atheists and agnostics out of government, you want to get rid of a lot of these positions altogether. And what are you talking about? The Bible clearly establishes that we need to have some government. And so isn't the point just to try to make sure better people than worse people are the ones running it? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll start that answer. And Dick might have some more justice oriented uh, remarks to say about the Christians participation in, in government. I would say, of course, uh, given the world that we live in, I'd much rather have people who are ethical and trustworthy and, um, you know, are true followers of Jesus uh, be in seats where they get to make decisions that affect a lot of people, okay? Uh, with with that one thing I said about be true followers of Jesus, there's a bit of me that's like, well, even as I say that, I'm wondering, like, if you're a true follower of Jesus, you'd sort of abdicate your responsibility to even make laws over other people in the first place. Um, and so, of course, that's the my inner anarchist speaking. Um, I would say that for any individual Christian, and we do directly talk about this in the book when it comes to uh, those who want to be maybe soldiers in the government, uh, 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 sign up for the military, um, but even just any participation in government itself, you really have to ask yourself what it is that you're getting yourself involved in. If it's a matter of, you know, doing right by the your fellow men in your congressional district or whatever and advocating for them and for their rights, uh, you know, same way they're like Ron Paul might be, might, well, 
I would say might be doing, but but did uh, in his political career. Um, I would say that you know you're you're do you're going in a direction that bends toward justice, and you're going in a direction that bends toward allowing other people to call call Jesus Lord and not Caesar. When you enable Caesar to keep to making demands of of others, especially those who claim to follow Jesus, you're you're putting them in a very awkward position, if not a you know an, an, an impossible position. Um, so I would say working toward justice as a Christian doesn't mean we have Christian laws. It means we have laws that also take into account um, the fact that we don't live in a nation like Israel where we can just assume that the next person is going to follow exactly the way the way that we want things to go. So, you know, it takes into account pluralism and also the fact that, you know, Jesus said to his followers, you know, the Gentiles lorded over each other and that is not what it's going to be like with you. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot going on there in my answer. Maybe Dick can sort of pinpoint some some more of it. Well, I had to save my witty comeback, and that is that <laughs> it turns out there's no baby in there. It's just all bathwater. Okay, <laughs> and so oh, nice. that's, we're not really throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, the question for a Christian ought to be, what is the end that I'm trying to achieve? And are these means permissible? Right? Shall we do evil so that good may come? God forbid. No, I can't go engage in sin in order to glorify God. God can work out his plan even in spite of my sin, but it doesn't, you know, it's not something that I'm supposed to do as a Christian believer to go engage in conduct that is clearly forbidden as as sin. And so any Christian trying to achieve a noble purpose, right? I want to feed the poor, right? I want to protect the, the vulnerable, you know, all of these things that are noble ends. The problem is, analyzing are the means, well, even are they effective, but then also are they just? Is it is it uh, something that doesn't violate the rights of others for me to go about feeding the poor this way? Because that's important too. We can't just create more victims. And so I think that sort of analysis is part of what we as libertarians try to focus on, right? And that is often an end when I'm talking to somebody who I know disagrees with me, I start out looking for the things that we both care about. And it's, you know, most people are not just raving sociopaths. They have some noble thing they're trying to achieve. And I think they might just be a little mistaken about how to get there and what the right way to, to get there is. And so I, you know, that, that is a great place to start. And especially with other believers, right? I mean, if somebody, you know, is a believer in Jesus Christ, I've already got the most important kind of common ground with them that there could be. Now talking about the question of believers in government, while there's this thing called a state that exists, how should Christians interact with it? And should we try to go in there and and sort of tinker on it and, and nibble at the margins? Now, I'm going to tell you, my demonstrated preferences are uh, public knowledge here, right? I not only work uh, in private practice as an attorney in this office, but I have an office over in the Nebraska Capitol where I'm an attorney for the Nebraska legislature. So I do help write uh, legislation and amendments that you know, modifies pending legislation. And I sit in hearings all day long during the legislative session, hearing public comment and comment from different stakeholders about these different issues that come before the body. And I do believe that there is room to work with people to try to make laws less offensive to justice. Uh, And I think that's really where the work is, is reducing the size and scope of government. I'm not sure that we can ever cure our problem of statism that way, but I don't think it has to be an all or nothing endeavor, right? I can oppose rape and murder even while acknowledging that probably I'll never live in a rape and murder free world. 
and I can go and try to nibble at the margins of the state, even though I ultimately believe that all of these programs are problematic. But, you know, if I can reduce the impact on even one person or one group of people, maybe there was something valuable there. Uh, And so that's what I try to do. And and I do think there's a place for Christians to do that. And I'll tell you uh, right now, you know, I attend a Bible study with uh, other staffers and we talk about why what we do in the Capitol ought to be informed by our faith. And sometimes that's an evangelism exercise, but usually it's more of a discipleship exercise. Uh, And so I, I think there's a place for that. And of course, going back to the topic, Bob, that you sort of broached earlier, we aren't supposed to just totally segregate ourselves for even from unbelievers, right? Even people that are totally opposed to Christ, we're still supposed to try to reach out to those people. And it's not up to us what happens to them, but we're supposed to be God's instruments and, and be a witness there. And I don't think that that duty stops at the marble floor of the Capitol. So, okay, great. Why don't we jump ahead here? So, just so you guys know, I'm now I'm in section two, libertarian basics. So, one of the at least in some versions or some expositions of libertarianism, one of the fundamentals building blocks or starting points is to say you own yourself, the self-ownership. And yet I like your question 16 here. It says, but doesn't one Corinthians six nineteen explicitly state we do not own ourselves. Doesn't God own all things? So that seems like a pretty big problem at step one. If some libertarians say the building block, the starting point of this is you own yourself and yet the Bible seems to clearly say you don't own yourself. And that's why, for example, a lot of Christians would say, of course, suicide yeah. is a sin. You, you don't have you don't have the right to kill yourself. You know, that, that some libertarian might think that, but not we Christians. Yeah. So isn't that a pretty big conflict and not like merely a semantic issue? This is this is the liber this is the libertarian Christian uh version of who will build the roads. Um okay. <laughs> it's like one of those. Uh, first question is like, well, wait, if you believe in self-ownership, you know, exactly what you just said, like what's the, what, where's the, obje- that's the objection that a lot of people say. What I go for is I think of it in terms of like my vertical relationship with God versus the, or humans with God and our relationship to one another. So for me to say to you, Bob, that, you know what, you don't have a right to do what you want with your human agency. God owns you. You don't own yourself. So you have to listen to what God, well, what I'm doing um, is I'm telling you what I think God wants you to believe. Okay. And that is not up for me to tell you what God wants you to do. That is for you. That's between you and God. Now I am for certainly well informed by Christian theology, by the scriptures, um, and, you know, by following Jesus, understanding, you know, what, what that tends to look like. Uh, but for me to make that sort of claim is, is actually for me to say that you, you can't own yourself. And that's what I think a lot of people are doing. It's like, oh, well, you don't, you don't own yourself. God owns you. And, and the sort of the leftist version, you know, sort of leans into like, well, society owns you because, you know, you're not your own. You were made to be in communicate or into in harmony with, with other people. Um, so in terms of like the relationship with God, yeah, sure. God owns everything. I don't think God is the owner in the sort of Lockean and property rights sort of way. God is the creator. And so it's a little bit of a category error as well in my mind. Yes. Um, and so for, for us to say that God owns everything, it's not like God hasn't done any sort of delegation whatsoever um, because clearly God has done so. So 
another awkward way of putting it is I would say, instead of believing in self-ownership, I would say self-stewardship, right? Mm -hmm. So like, okay, fine. God owns everything. God owns you. Um, and so it's up to you to find out what God wants you to do with your life. But who's responsible for figuring that out? It's not me, Bob. I don't get to tell you how you should live, how you and your relationship with God should work. Um, that is, that is, I certainly can help you as a friend, as a, as a, as a comrade in liberty, as it were. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's totally that's that's up between you and God. And and Dick's sort of you know, leaning in on the screen here. He's like ready to jump in, so I'm gonna let him. Oh no, I. Well, I just was having a fond memory of a conversation that I had with Walter Block about this like 17 years ago. And uh, and I think Walter ended up agreeing with me, which is why I have such a strong memory, because it's like a thing to brag about. Walter agreed with me. <laughs> but uh, God doesn't exist in a state of scarcity, right? Like he has an infinite amount of time and infinite amount of resources. He could have infinite duplicates of every, you know what I mean? So it's just, I, I like the fact that Doug called it a sort of category error, because God's just not he doesn't exist in a realm where property rights are even really relevant, except for in a sort of an analogous or metaphorical way. So in he owns sense, all multiverses. <laughs> right. <laughs> Insofar as they may exist, which I'm not, I don't know if they do or not. But uh, the, the fact is, God's being master of it and then delegating authority in relation to other people through these things that we call property rights or injustice and so on. That's not a challenge to God's sovereignty. It's an exercise of God's sovereignty, right? That he's the one who created that scheme, that people would be owners of things that they have, you know, worked through the sweat of their brow to take out of the state of nature or exchanged or gifted to others, right? Like that's God's system that we ended up in after we left a state of, of plenty, uh, you know, and, and practical non-scarcity uh, before the fall, right? And so that we don't have to worry about God being challenged by this idea that people should own things because, by the way, in the inspired scriptures, we're told that, right? Thou shalt not steal implies that what person can own a thing to begin with. Otherwise, it would be a nonsensical claim to claim that someone stole it, right? Okay. All right. Very good. So I think he would be okay if I shared this anecdote So with Walter Block and ownership and whatnot. I actually, a while ago, proposed to Walter a paper topic that, you know, we would co-author, as, as you know, Walter's not uh, reluctant to co-author papers with people. And, and I said, Walter, how, how do you like this idea to say premise, if the historical Genesis account were accurate, you know, so, it, so it's a conditional, if it were true that that's where the universe came from, that, you know, all the physical things in the material universe, then God would be the libertarian owner of everything. And clearly he would have the right to lay down whatever rules he wanted because we're all like tenants in his property. And he could, you know, he yeah. could tell you, you can't eat pork. He could tell you, you can't, you know, get tattoos. He could do whatever he wants and do it around me. And that's totally fine. And people like Christopher Hitchens should stop saying he's a tyrant because he owns everything. And per standard libertarian principles, he's the so owner a, of the universe. A, a theistic say, hey, murder if, park. Yeah. If you, if you don't like his rules, then go get, go, go do a different universe right? Kind of thing. And Walter just wrote back and he said, let me think about this, Bob. This is pretty weird. And I thought, wow, that's kind of a milestone if I got Walter to back off of a, of a libertarian topic because it's too weird. Um, so now speaking of Walter and co-authoring mm -hmm. things, you know, I, I guess in mathematics, everybody has an Erdos number, right? How many degrees of separation you are from, you know, Professor Erdos, you know, did you co-author with him or with one of his co-authors so on? 
And we would have a similar system in libertarianism, but your block number would never exceed two. And so it wouldn't really be a useful (laughs) descriptor. So anyway. All right. So so there's that element. And and, and my joke, too, is to say that atheist libertarians really love homesteading, except when it comes to God. You know, because they're very clear that not only is the God of the Bible a silly fairy tale and your daddy in the sky because you need an emotional crutch, morons, but – He's a horrible tyrant too. And I want to say, well, wait a minute. It's, you know, pick what, yeah, if you want to just say you don't believe in those stories and it's, you know, like Zeus or something, okay, fine. But if the hidden narrative happened, but it sounds like what you guys are saying is actually, you think it's, there's a sense in which really it's, it's kind of a not correct to say God is the owner of the universe in that, in the sense. And so maybe as you were saying that, it was sort of challenging me and I was like, oh, huh, okay, I can see where you're coming from. When you say it's a category error, perhaps to talk like that, I suppose it would be analogous to someone saying, oh, you think you own that house? No, you don't. Because if there's an earthquake, oops, your house gets destroyed. And yeah. so really nature owns your house and mm. you just, you know, are a tenant. That would be silly to talk like that and say, well, no, when we talk about ownership, we mean something specific. Yeah. And yeah, the natural, you know, natural disasters or acts of God, if you will, happen. And well, that and, doesn't and, mean that, you know, and you wouldn't say nature stole my house from me. That would, that would also be a category error. And part of this is a semantic issue, right? Because if we talk about owner, like who owns that car over there, we mean like if I go to the DMV, whose name is going to be, you know, the owner of record of that. Okay. So I just want to be clear. Ownership derives from the state is what Dick Clark is saying. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, we're just in the thrall of the state as it happens in 2021 here where I'm at. But, but, you know, or the, you know, who's the owner of record at the register of deeds or, you know, who has a bill of sale showing that they, you know, Just put it on the blockchain yeah. in Jeff Tucker world. That's, well, yeah, right. that's, that's our yeah. preference, of course, is that <laughs> Jeff manage all of it. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, that's a different sort of question than to say, like, you know, who is the owner of the hearts of mankind or so, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. we're not then asking like, Hey, do you own that heart that's in your chest? We're really asking about a different kind of ownership. Right. Okay, and so right. when we say that God is the sovereign of the world, well, right now, God does not have like a capital city where he's ruling and has all these bureaucrats that go out and run a bunch of departments, right? I mean, that's not the kind of rule that that we're referring to. Now, you know, depending on your eschatology, is that, uh, you know, a Christian worldview about what may be to come? Sure. But again, that's not what we're talking about in the here and now. And so, again, mm-hmm. it's just sort of talking past each other when we get into that argument to some extent. So, yeah. All right. Let me let's try it this way. Um, and, and this is more just to shed light on your guys' framework. If a atheist libertarian says, I own myself and so I can commit suicide and a standard Christian says, no, you can't because that would violate God's law and you don't own yourself. How do you guys weigh in on that? Would you say, yes, you do own yourself, but it's still immoral and God still has the ability to tell you it's a, or, sir, it's still a sin. And so, yeah, you have the legal right. And so we humans can't use force to stop you from killing yourselves. It should be legal to commit suicide, at least maybe if you're 18 or something. But that it would still be a sin in most circumstances. Like maybe if you're about to get tortured or something, then even, you know, standard Christian would say it's okay. I don't know if I would tie it's a sin because God owns you. Mm -hmm. Like, because we've already kind of qualified that that isn't even right, quite the right category in that God created you you know, I might say to this person, God created you, and that has all sort of implications. 
Um, it isn't about who has the right to make choices. Whether God owns you, creates you, however we want to kind of talk about this, God has given individuals the authority to or the agency to make personal decisions. And that decision to commit suicide is not a sin or a, it isn't a sin or not a sin simply because I can say to them, well, you don't own your body. Does that make sense? That's mm-hmm. not the dispositive fact. Yeah. So I, you know, I would also point out that just because something is a sin doesn't mean that it's an injustice in relation to other people, right? And other people should not, and this of course is central to the whole libertarian credo and and I think is central to me as a libertarian Christian, just because something is sinful doesn't necessarily mean that I can use violent compulsion to stop it mm-hmm. or to modify that person's behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think the classic case that we can draw straight from the life of Jesus is the woman caught in adultery, which at the time was treated as a sort of property crime, but really that's not there thereafter. This was about vengeance against a, a obvious and notorious sinner, I think is how that was approached by the people that were going to stone her. And Jesus did not intervene by saying, well, you know, you own your own body. And so if you want to commit adultery, really, that's on you. I mean, he didn't deny the sinfulness of her conduct, but he just basically denied the, the status or the the jurisdiction of the people who are going to stone her. Like, like you're not qualified to do this. If you've got no st- sin, well, come on up here and be the judge, right? And so he still told her to go and sin no more. I mean, there was still a correction as to the moral issue, but I, at least in that situation, it seems pretty clear that Jesus was saying that violent compulsion or execution in that case wasn't just, right? And so mm-hmm. I would say as a libertarian Christian, there's a whole category of, conduct that you can enter into that doesn't please God, right? And and I think hurts your relationship with God and is going to hurt, you know, uh, hurt you in the long run, but it may not go so far as to be something that can justify compulsion. And so if you're violating the rights of others, and of course, we as libertarians talk about things like the NAP, right, the non-aggression principle, uh, to use as a lens to, to analyze these justice problems, but if it doesn't violate the NAP, well, I'll pray for you. I'll try to counsel you. You know, there there might be other peaceful interventions, but com- violent compulsion is reserved for aggressors, right? For people who violate the rights of others as God has established them. So, Okay. Let me jump ahead here to question 19. Libertarianism just seems like a selfish philosophy to me. And I think particularly in 2020, and I will ruffle some feathers perhaps, but my longtime listeners know this is my stance on this. It was in the year 2020 that I was like, oh, now I totally understand why a lot of people hate libertarians. And so, um, <laughs> and there were, you know, certain things, oh, we were just kidding. But there, there was an underlying sentiment of the, the very idea, the notion that I would have to adjust my personal lifestyle because someone else might be negatively affected like that. How dare you, sir? <laughs> you know, and wh- yeah, forget yeah. about property. And I'm not asking you, you guys don't need to talk about coronavirus. That's fine. I don't, I don't want to sure. mix that into this. But I'm just saying me personally, I used to dismiss that. Oh, come on. Yeah. We're talking about libertarianism is selfish. Give me a break, dude. Yeah. Why don't you go read some? And I, I understood finally wh- where that particular criticism was coming from in, in 2020, just my own yeah. observation there. But so in general, what do you guys, how do you say that, that I could understand a lot of Christians thinking Hey, you know, maybe doctrinally or something fine, but you know, in practice, it seems like a lot of libertarians are doing that because 
they don't really care that much about other people. And this seems yeah. like a philosophy suited to them. And of course, let's bring up Ayn Rand <laughs> literally has a book called the virtue of selfishness. It seems hard to avoid the fact that, yeah, it seems yeah. like there might be a connection between libertarianism and selfishness. Well, I would point out, first of all, bless her heart uh, as a Southerner, I can say that uh, Ayn Rand <laughs> was not a native English speaker. Uh, she was a very prodigious uh, writer in the English language, but to me, I, I just wholly reject the idea that libertarian is selfish, and I would use the phrase that Doug already used uh, earlier in the, in the conversation of self-interestedness, right? The fact is, uh, and, and actually, really, that's just a rational limitation, right? And Austrians understand this, that I don't know and, and cannot know the, the preferences and needs and desires of every other person on the planet, but I have all this local information about myself. And it just so happens that you know, the way God created us, you know, I'm taking care of this body and running it around and we don't have a hive mind, right? We're not created as some collective. We we have individual minds and individual consciences and we all have to individually be saved from our sin. And to recognize that that is the condition of man is not selfish. I think it's just realistic that, yeah, we, we don't all share a, a, you know, a connection between our neurons interpersonally, right? We, we have to run around <laughs> as individual people. Uh, and the other part of it, some people would say selfish because the insinuation is that this is harmful to others. And of course, most libertarians, I think, would say, you know, would agree with that Rothbard quote about the the most just society. You know, it's a happy coincidence that it's also the most prosperous one. And in fact, people are made better off when people generally are free to go and be entrepreneurs and build things and advance the division of labor and technology and all that. And, and today, what do we see in the world? But, you know, a, a smaller real number and smaller percentage of the global population in poverty than really any other time in human history. And that is in part because of markets at work, right? I mean, almost entirely because of markets at work and people advancing the work of generations before. And so it's, it's not anti-other to believe in mm -hmm. individual liberty. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why people think it's selfish to say that I don't think that I have a right to tell them what to do. Like, it's it's like, which is more selfish, that I don't get to tell you what to do or that you think that you get to tell me what to do um, or, or participate in this sort of state action that gets to tell me uh, the parameters I, I have to live in. I mean, because if you think about it, the libertarian framework of justice is far more liberal than the the way that the state is is heading. I mean, there's there's more, I mean, goodness gracious, there's so many laws. I mean, we're, we're talking right now about the Biden administration, you know, thinking about uh, how it is like the IRS, you know, basically being able to monitor most of our financial transactions that are not cash or crypto and maybe even crypto. So it's like, it, in what world do you want to live in where people actually leave each other alone and, and, and or, or I, I don't know, I just, or, or the one where like everybody gets to sort of what what is it uh, the the Bastiat quote everyone plunders everyone like I don't know which is more selfish but I really don't think it's the one where I don't think I have a right over you. All right, let me again just in the interest of sure. making this more provocative, yeah. I'll, I'll push back. So yeah. I can let me pretend I'm the typical statist here in that I might say, oh yeah, that's a very glib way of phrasing it, Doug, but that's not in practice what it is. Nobody's forcing you to deploy force on everybody else. So if you want to not tell other people what to do, like you don't have to vote or whatever, in practice, what the libertarians are saying is stop telling me what to do. Mm. Like in other words, that's why it, it appeals 
to people. And, you know, in other words, we can live in a non-libertarian society. And the, those of you who don't want to boss other people around, you can just stay home on election day. But there are right. some of us who feel like there's minimum standards of conduct and, you know, we yeah. got to all contribute 10% to feed the poor or whatever. And, you know, so in that world, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm not afraid to tell you what to do. Yeah, and, no, and I mean, I have, you can still respect your view. And if, if all if all libertarianism entailed is that you don't feel you have the authority or the competence to tell other people what to do, fine. You're free to do that yourself yeah, yeah. in my status world. So what, what would you say to that? Well, except I'm not really. Um, I, you know, your status world really what does want me to participate and is going to force me to pay for it and participate. But my, my sort of glib answer is, well, I'm leading by example, you know, right? Like I'm the one who says that, you know, you shouldn't do that. It, hey, it, hey, hang on, let me just real. I just want to clarify the, yeah. the hypothetical. What you just said there, right? The, the status is not is agreeing. Yeah, I'm telling you what to do. You got to contribute money to the poor, and if you don't, it's because you're selfish, right? But you saying, oh no, it, you know, our philosophy isn't selfishness. It's it's not so much that we don't want to contribute or anything, or we mind people telling. It's that I don't want to impose on you, and I'm saying, yeah, you you don't have to impose on me. You don't have to force me to go by Rothbard or whatever. But you see, what I mean, so you just said, oh, no, I'm not you're not free to not coerce others if you're forced to contribute. And they would say that's not what we're talking about. Yeah, we're forcing well, I you feel to like fund the poor. Maybe I'm misunderstanding, but it sounds like okay. if you, the statist, are telling me that I got to pay taxes, you are forcing me. Whereas whatever world I want to live in, I'm not forcing you to do anything. Right. And I'm saying, but you agree it's not enough for you to just live in a world where you're not giving orders to other people. You also don't want other people giving you orders, so stop hiding behind. Oh no, no, it's not that we're selfish and we don't want to be bossed yeah. around. It's that we well, just don't feel we're qualified. And they're saying in any world, if you don't feel qualified, you can just not. Yeah, give sure. Orders. I mean, no, yeah. I mean, I guess I would probably sort of change that conversation based on who I'm talking about. If I'm talking mm -hmm. to a far left female, I'd probably say, so it's okay for the majority to tell you what to do with your body, with relates to abortion. Like right. I would ask her that question and, and, you know, everyone's a libertarian on abortion if you're pro-choice, like mm -hmm. in, in the sense that like, oh, my body, my choice, right? right. right? Like that's what yeah. I meant by that. Libertarian um, as to some of the parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I didn't mean, <laughs> I, I meant like as in like everybody is a leave me alone if they are right. pro, if they're a pro-choice female. That right. makes sense? That's what I meant. Or, hey, what happens in the bedroom isn't the government's business. That's right. a, a typical thing of someone who's, <laughs> they wouldn't say, hey, what happens in the, you know, in the factory so, floor is not the government's business. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in civil disobedience, of course, you know, Thoreau talks about being a part of things or, you know, not being a part of things and hoping they'll just sort of wear smooth over time. But, of course, he very famously went to jail for his refusal to pay a tax based on his objection to a particular war, and I think war generally, and his objection to slavery, right? And and his family was a noted abolitionist family. And so there is that viewpoint that some people hold that, hey, if my money is taken from me and goes to fund this really awful violence, if I don't do anything to stop that, don't I have some culpability? Now, I'm not sure I agree with Thoreau that he had culp would have had culpability because I don't think you're ultimately responsible for what the mugger does with your wallet, right? I mean, he, he stole your wallet and you didn't want him to do that. And what he does with it after that, it's not your fault that you couldn't overcome the really tough, strong man that, that bested you in the mugging, right? So I, that's not the challenge for me. But in that hypothetical that you present, Bob, the, the problem is that, of course, it's not like the choice to, hey, you either participate or just sit back and let everybody else do all this noble stuff. 
it's kind of like the choice that Caesar tells the Christian, like, look, you don't you don't have to, you know, be you know, be uh, submissive to my authority. You also have this choice to go to the lions, and nobody's forcing you to pick one or the other. Mm-hmm. And just you know, you are free to just uh, sit there and have the lions pick pick you clean, right? And so it's it's a false choice in the sense that. The alternative is, well, we're just going to make you do it anyway and pretend that that's some other yeah. alternative. Yeah. Can I, can I add one thing here, Bob? Yeah. One of the reasons that I became a libertarian was about probably 20, no, yeah, about 20 years ago, I started becoming interested in social justice. And it had to do with what I believe still in a way that uh, that Jesus does want us to care about the poor. And that isn't just an individual mandate, that, that there is a... There's work that the church collective can do uh, to further, you know, caring for the poor and those on the margins. Um, At some point, I started realizing that the only political or electoral political solution was really those advocated by like those on the left, you know, like the sojourners, Jim Wallace, Christian left kind of. And I just didn't feel right. So I felt like I needed to um, study economics. And it happened to be that your one of your books was the first one that I actually uh, picked up. Um, and I don't know what I would have happened if I'd picked up a different book. So maybe I would, wouldn't even be sitting here today <laughs> if I'd picked up a different one. Um, but be it on was Paul basically Krugman's like... Podcast. What's that? I said you'd be on Paul Krugman's podcast. <laughs> maybe. Um, or I'd be mocking people who listen to Contra Krugman <laughs> on Facebook. But anyway, um, the reason I bring up that story is that I was highly interested in how... Um, how could the poor be better off in society? And it seemed to me over the course of several years that the society that respects the individual rights of people who are trying to, to have a go and do their, do their best to help themselves out of poverty, whether it be just the, the poor person in the city trying to have a run a business. Um, and yet there's, you know, there's the treading on them by the by the regulatory bodies that say you need a certain license. It's super expensive and all that. We all know that as libertarians is is a big you know barrier to entry. And so in my mind, the "don't tread on me" is is really not a personal statement. I I get a little agitated, uh, you know, especially over COVID. I was pretty upset with my governor for the limitations that that ended up happening on my life. Um, but I. You know, I don't like writing checks to the IRS in April uh, or May or whatever year, whatever month it is extended to. Um, but for me, it isn't really about me as a personal statement. It's more about okay, if I if I cared about the poor, the kind of world that I want to live in is the is a libertarian world. It's not a world mm. um, just that I don't get to tell other people what to do and so forth. Um, and so that that's again, that's a personal way to look at it, but, you know, don't tread on me really means don't tread on others as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and, you know, the easiest comeback to some of these objections is just say, look, I'm not sitting in prison. Okay. I'm not, I'm not the one who's at the very tippy tip of the government spear. Okay. It's not that, oh, woe is me. Therefore change this policy. So I don't have to feel so sorry for myself. I mean, there are much greater victims of these government policies and programs than me. And it's, and the fact is, uh, that's just sort of an ad hominem attack mm-hmm. that's often thrown at libertarians that, oh, you must either be a top hat and monocle wearing like Monopoly man, <laughs> or you're just, you know, on so many drugs that you just don't know the right answer. Right. And and it, they take away the possibility that maybe you just arrived at these conclusions through a good faith analysis that you conducted and you really believe these are the answers. Right. And, mm-hmm. and 
of course, libertarians some make that you know make that same mistake, right? And we assume bad faith about the others instead of saying, you know, maybe they're just mistaken, and I can lead them over to this correct line of of thinking. But I I think the comeback is look, there's lots of people worse off than me, and the things that I'm talking about are to help them too. Uh, and you know, the fact is, we can talk about not just the theoretical but the real world history of a lot of these policies, right? Like I was in a discussion today about the minimum wage, because of course I'm a libertarian, right? But uh, somebody's talking about, well, we can't even do this basic $15 an hour minimum wage. And uh, I said, well, you know, the origin of the minimum wage in America was expressly to prevent black non-union workers from being able to get federal government contracts. Uh, And I mean, it was always from its origin, you know, it was racist in intent then, and it's still racist in effect now. And you're hurting the people you're trying to help. And again, that's not an argument about ends. It's an argument about means and not only what means are just, but does this even work to do the thing you're trying to do? And I, But people have to be willing to engage in a good faith way to say, well, hey, I really believe that if I present you enough evidence, maybe I could change your mind, right? I'm not just trying to score points on you like a boxing match. Mm-hmm. So that's, like I say, it's a temptation for libertarians, of course, uh, and more often for us because we're right so often, but it's, uh, it's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. Okay, okay. good. It's funny because it's true, Doug. I'm just watching the. I'm watching the clock here, so let me, I wanted to make sure we had enough time. Why don't we jump ahead to a immigration? Yeah. Uh, so, is it? Am I looking at these questions? Is it correct to say that this book takes the position of for open borders? Are you comfortable saying that? I think we take the position that people and capital should be able to move freely. Uh, and yeah, so of course, as, open as borders, a default, yeah, open borders kind of implies that there is this thing called a border and there's all, there's a, a lot that's attached to that term, but yeah, that that's the, probably the most straightforward way to answer it is, yeah, that's how most people would read it. Uh, but you know, we're very much in favor of boundaries, but mm-hmm. those would be property boundaries, right? The boundaries around stuff that people own. And we just don't think that having a bureaucracy centrally plan how people come into the country is like a good way to go about it any more than we would think it's a good idea for the central planners to, mm. you know, schedule the bread production, right? It's just- Okay, okay, yeah. So, so hang on, I'm, I'm, I'm don't want to cut you off, but I didn't mean to put words in your mind. I'm just saying because yeah. some of these questions have the phrase open borders in there that I thought, because it, that's my one of the things I say to Brian Kaplan is, why do you pick that needlessly- provocative term when your actual position is you're for private borders. Yeah. And, and, and so maybe, you know, maybe that goes hand in hand with you saying now, practically speaking, given the world we live in, I don't want the uh, federal government using guys with guns to police arbitrary lines in the sand. I don't think those concepts are the same though. A border and a boundary Mm. aren't the same. A border, we, we don't talk, you know, I work in the law and I don't specifically work in property law primarily but we typically talk about a property boundary and really border is the kind of vocabulary that we use when we're talking about a government boundary, right? Okay. And so All right, fair enough. when people are talking about borders, they're talking about, hey, your sovereignty as a state stops here and somebody else picks up on the other side of that. And, you know, to me in the Bible, the, the first thing that jumps out at me is the fact that the Israelites were told again and again, 
hey, you can't have a double standard. You can't have a different law for the stranger than for the native born. And that's an example of one of the ways that Israel was engaging in injustice that was abhorrent to God and was causing their national judgment. This is one of the things that they were engaged in that that was just a deal breaker for God to continue to bless them. Uh, and so that I have to follow that because it's just in the plain, you know, the black letter law, as mm-hmm. we say. Uh, but of course, you mentioned Kaplan. I mean, there's an empirical argument to be made, right, that, that look, it's it's not this big negative thing to let a bunch of people move someplace so they can all go get jobs and work really hard and have a more prosperous life than they would have in the first place, right? And in fact, that there, it's arguable that usually that's just an arbitrage that's occurring, right? I'm, I'm taking this labor from where it's really cheap and bringing it someplace to where it's dear and, and I can benefit from, from that move. And uh, frankly, I think that's a good thing. And I, I joke around with, with people that maybe don't share my views of, of immigration. Uh, I, I say, look, do you really want to select for the people that are good at filling out government forms? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so, and so I don't, I also, I want to draw a pretty clear line in the sand. There are some libertarians that are very tempted to say, well, 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 you know, while the while we're in the thrall of the state, while we have this government entity or a bunch of entities in control, don't you want them to sort of manage it as responsibly as they can, like this yeah. sort of quasi-owner, even though we all agree they're not really the owner, right? And the problem with that is it's so nebulous, right, in part because of the calculation problem. There's no way to really rigorously analyze it. You just end up using that as an excuse for whatever your foregone conclusion was, I think. I, I just don't think there's a rigorous way to derive, okay, well, here's the correct immigration policy given that we're in the thrall of the state and we need these quasi-state manager you know, th- people to continue to operate in some fashion. I, the fact is it's wrong to use violence against somebody if they're not an aggressor. And I, the government shouldn't have any right to stop me from inviting somebody over for dinner if I want, whether they're from Mexico or from New Mexico. Uh, and and that's the bottom line. And that's and that brings up the other point as a, a libertarian Christian, you know, the least of these, right? When Jesus is talking about the least of these, he's talking about, among others, the stranger at your door. And I think that we are commanded as Christians to be welcoming and Christian hospitality is a thing. It's, I mean, it's the fruit of the spirit. Uh, and so if we are in a position where our government forbids us from engaging in conduct that God commands us to engage in, that's where a decision point comes. And like Daniel, who was a government official, right, one of the highest ranked government officials, piously engaged in civil disobedience, right? He went out on the balcony to pray because at this point, the law of the land conflicted with the law of God. And he said, well, I'm going to make it real clear which side I'm on. And so we're, not all government laws are like that. Sometimes I can say, you know, I'm going to submit to this. It's violating my rights. But like Doug said, I'm going to pay my taxes. Uh, and not just purely for fear of wrath, but to avoid the appearance of of evil, right? I don't want to look like a lawbreaker because that interferes with my Christian witness. Uh, but that doesn't make the taxes right either. So, all right. So, j- just as a matter of historical knowledge, are you the kingdom of Israel? And maybe you need to distinguish among. Well, when this guy was a king, this was the policy. That, but did they not really have border enforcement? Well, or you're saying they did, but you think that was part of what God was mad about when he said, don't have different laws for foreigners versus. So I, I guess I was not just strictly talking about, are you admitted or, or, or is there a wall in front of you? But of course we have different rules for people who are in the country as non-citizens about what they're allowed to do. And especially if you're not here on a 
you know, a green card, but you have some kind of a temporary non-immigrant visa, you can't work. I mean, there's all sorts of constraints on what you can do and where you can go that there wouldn't be on another person. And fundamentally, if you're treating somebody differently because they were born, you know, under a different state than you were, I, I think that really does get to the to the core issue. Now, if somebody's talking about an attack, you know, I don't think Nehemiah was doing anything wrong to like rebuild the walls or whatever, because that really was fortification against aggressors, right? That's that's like having locks on your doors in a sense, right? And it's just that all of your neighbors come together to put the lock on the door in that, in that uh, example. I don't think that's the same as borders around a nation, right? There wasn't a wall around the nation of Israel. They just had these city walls because at that level of civilization, that's the most efficient way to come together and like help defend each other, right? And so I, I'm i not sure that that's apples to apples, I guess is my response. Hmm. So of course, there's a reference in numerous uh, passages of scripture to the, not just the stranger, but the stranger sojourning among you, right? And so uh, the idea it really has to do with the person who has come to identify with the nation of Israel, but they're not of the nation of Israel, right? And so I, I do think that in Israel, it was possible to enter the territory of Israel, but you just had to, you know, abide by the same rules as everybody else. And of course, at that time, that's going to include prohibitions on idolatry and all sorts of things that were not always perfectly enforced. But yeah, I don't, I don't think there was a strict prohibition, and, and we can see the evidence that there wasn't uh, from from these accounts of the sojourner among us. So. All right. How about this one? I'm, I'm jumping ahead here. Question 97 says, aren't libertarians hedonists who just want to live however they want to? <laughs> oh, we will not use this opportunity to talk about John Piper's Christian hedonism platform. <laughs> <right>? uh, <laughs> so I, I don't think that this is just about, uh, you know, maximum pleasure, right? If that's the formulation of, of hedonism, uh, because of course, property rights incentivize uh, behaviors that might not be perceived as totally hedonist, right? If, if you're in a situation where you have no ability to save, no ability to invest, you're going to consume as fast as possible. And to me, that's more associated with hedonism. I think that markets and property rights and individual responsibility incentivize us to forego consumption today and save for tomorrow and plan for those sorts of things because I better, right? I mean, if I don't work, I'm not going to eat to, to yeah. borrow the, the biblical verbiage. Yeah, if people want a hedonistic world, they should adopt Keynesianism because it encourages <laughs> consumption and, you know, just to pleasure for today. Okay, well, why don't we stop the uh, going through the, bo the book here and let me just give you guys an opportunity for some final remarks. So are you, wh what exactly is your position? Are you telling someone who's a Christian but not libertarian that, hey, I invite you to explore these ideas and you might just find them compelling? Or is it a stronger claim that, you know, hey, not I'm not trying to guilt trip you or anything, but really, <laughs> if you were a consistent Christian, you would necessarily end up being libertarian, at least in the way that, yeah. you know, Doug and Dick think about what that term means. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're not here to browbeat anybody into mm -hmm. becoming a libertarian. That would be kind of, you know, self-refuting, I suppose, in, in a certain way. Uh, you know, in terms of our position, no, I think that if a Christian has clearly thought through what their political position is, it would definitely be one where they can't aggress against other people and that that actually naturally carries into 
uh, corporate or institutional uh, decisions as well. And that, you know, of course, implies that the state does not have a right over other people and that delegating authority from individuals to the state is is very problematic. Um, I mean, my personal wish is that we move people along in that direction. Uh, and so it doesn't mean that everybody that I'm going to have a conversation with is going to sort of become a libertarian, but they might become more libertarian in their views on immigration. You know, if they're a conservative, maybe they'll realize, oh, okay, maybe, you know, borders around the country are not analogous, analogous to private, you know, to locking my doors at night, you know? So now I've just made them more libertarian in that direction. So I look at that as sort of small wins, you know, in, in that way. Um, you know, Dick talks a lot about discipleship and I think, and I think there's a sense in which you, you know, sort of carry on the like, hey, I'm going to be your mentor in politics. But there is there's this sense of like, hey, I just want to see you move further along. And that's kind of my spirit toward other people. Um, and of course, I believe that libertarian or that Christians should be libertarians. I don't think they're a bad Christian if they're not. Now, again, what makes them a bad Christian is probably, you know, pretty relative in, in certain ways. But it also depends on what they actually advocate for. If they if they don't go vote for people, you know, to, you know, to uh, enforce you know, onerous drug drug war laws or whatever, then maybe they're not actually doing anything wrong. But anyway, I'll 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 let Dick take over here. Yeah. So I, I think the the real inspiration for this book was we've you know we've been libertarians long enough where we've heard a lot of the sort of same retreaded objections. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately we've been libertarians long enough where we've seen people who are zealous but maybe haven't thought it through before they had the question posed to them. Maybe we've seen some of our friends trip over that question. And so I, I thought uh, being a part of a project where we can say, you know, maybe here are some little sort of seeds of ideas, how you can approach a response to that objection. I, I, I think it was first to serve fellow libertarian Christians to give them a sort of, some, uh, you know, a way to start thinking about how to respond to that question if they, if they couldn't immediately yeah. get there themselves. But I'll tell you, I think I've given more copies of this book and talked to more people about this book who were Christian believers but not yet libertarians because it's a way to – since it's all divided up by topics in the book, you can sort of get a feel what is this this person's issue that they like to think about the most or feel like they're the most involved in. And let's go to that conversation and I can show them, hey, you know, this isn't just me in a one-off. You know, this is, some, this is really what a, a yeah. group of people believe. And so it's it's been a great conversation starter for that. And uh, if nothing else, you can shame people into saying, hey, you got to take a look at my book. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know. I enjoyed collaborating with, with Doug and the others on it. And I've got to say, you know, I was a Wikipedia editor, you know, 12,000 edits and all this stuff. I've worked in a lot of collaborative writing things. This was the most peaceful and friendly collaboration of a, of a substantial length work that I've ever worked on. And I just have to chalk that up to uh, somebody else being in control uh, and not us and us all sort of having that baseline as believers. Uh, and it was really a neat experience and a lot yeah. of fun. So, yeah, I, I do want to add one little thing here is that there are a lot of libertarians who get asked some of these hard questions uh, which is why, the, you know, libertarian Christian answers to tough questions. And again, not all of them are tough. Some of them are a little bit easier than others. But um, what ends up happening is, and again, this is obviously conducive to, you know, sitting down drinking a beer for four hours, but it's more like, okay, well, and then you spend four hours explaining why you believe that whatever, whatever, whatever. And... <laughs> 
<laughs> this is we're we're kind of like all right. For what about the water cooler moments where you only have a quick moment to share where you are? Um, and so this is like you know we don't want people to memorize the book, although that would be kind of interesting. Uh, but we want them to adopt their own answers. But this is this is sort of what you can say. And and uh, one one thing I didn't say earlier on is that the, all of these answers are around two hundred to two hundred fifty words. The only ones that are not. Um, with except for a few random ones, is the chapter on abortion, uh, which which uh, pretty much Carrie wrote. Um, so uh, we we felt that that deserved a little bit longer form. But our goal was, and originally it was like a hundred questions in two hundred words or less, yeah. mm-hmm. or fewer for you grammar Nazis out there. Right. So um, anyway, that that's kind of been the goal. We had to stretch it a little bit to get thorough answers, but it, we didn't really exceed two fifty three hundred mm-hmm. on any of these. So th- these are all less than a page each. Yeah, and there's a lot of scripture references in there and and pointers to further reading. Uh, and, you know, it's not the end of any of these conversations uh, that we talk about in the book, but hopefully it's a good starting mm. point. So. Yep. And, and then what you just mentioned there, Doug, is maybe relevant to, I'll go ahead and read the blurb I gave for the book because it's, it's just what you said. A very useful contribution that strikes a good balance between comprehensive answers and a wide variety of issues the questions are indeed the tough ones that would come from Christians who do not embrace libertarianism. Honest readers will appreciate the sincere attempts to meet these objections. And so, again, folks, we've been reading or discussing faith-seeking freedom, libertarian Christian answers to tough questions. My guests have been Doug Stewart and Dick Clark, two of the co-authors of that book, for links to where to get the book and just in general Libertarian Christian Institute resources, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 214. Doug and Dick, thanks so much for your time and being with us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.